Romans 3, starting in verse 21, um, and we're going to read 21 to chapter 4, verse 3, and then skip ahead to verse 13 to 25. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, there is no difference. For all who sin and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because, of his, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of, of observing the law. No. Sorry, I should say that as a question. On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold or establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And let's look ahead to verse 13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he, was, that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom we believe, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it has just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and, the, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power 
to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The Lord bless the reading of the Father, I know that I come, that I could come today with the best argument and word, even based upon your word, but without the power of your spirit, I am nothing. You, God, are my wisdom, not my reason or my intellect, but you alone. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you work here today, moving in the hearts of each person and showing them more of your true wisdom that of Christ being made our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption, increasing the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord in the hearts and minds of each person here today, multiplying their grace and peace in you. As the winds of the Holy Spirit's presence pass over and through people today, help them to know conviction if they are apart from Christ or to know assurance if they are in Christ. And I pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. So I could have went a lot of different ways today on righteousness, but God seemed to land in this one specific spot in my heart. And I titled it, All Rise to the Honorable, Just, and Justifier. Um, and if anybody caught that, it's presenting him to a judge or into a courtroom before the judge, when the judge walks in, all rise. Um, and he's presented here in the passage that we've read as the just and the justified. So just keeping that in mind as you go ahead. But so imagine yourself in this courtroom. The Almighty God is the judge sitting before the great podium, gavel in hand. This, the same Almighty God, who is the right, who is righteous and just, and the establisher and upholder of the law. The law's demands are put forth and challenge the account against our life. We stand as our own defense, and the law reads thus out of Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, 
but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not commit murder. And Jesus took this one also and said that if you hate someone in your heart, it is the same as committing murder. You shall not commit adultery. And Jesus also took this one and said that if you commit lust in your heart, it's the same as adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, which is the same as lying. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I want you to pause just for a minute and consider these for a moment. How many of these have you committed in your lifetime and how many times? Now consider the punishment required for these crimes. Some might say eternity in hell is a bit of a harsh and almost cruel punishment for such small things that they perceive to have done in their eyes. And also that many of the sins that they have committed are rather more so against others here on earth. So they have already received the punishment due them. But let's look at what King David of the Old Testament says about his crimes or sins that he committed, looking at one in particular. Do you remember when David called Bathsheba into his courts, the wife of one of his best friends, and how he sent his so-called friend into the front lines of war, sentencing him to his death to hide his own shame. Our reaction would often be that the ones he has sinned against would most definitely be the one he has murdered and his family, as well as most definitely against the woman Bathsheba, who he has now taken and most likely forced to be his wife. And yet David cries, I have sinned against you alone, O God, in Psalm 51. How could this be so? This is so because he dishonored the God who he said he believed, the God he trusted in and followed, the God he called Lord, the God he was made to be an image bearer of. He dishonored him by breaking this law, the Ten Commandments, that both was established and is upheld by the Almighty God. He committed a crime against an everlasting God of which could only require an everlasting punishment. Pause and consider this for a moment. If you were in 
some way, if you were to in some way dishonor or hurt and hurt a friend of yours. At worst, you may lose a friend, as they might want to stop being your friend. But say you were to take the same crime and commit it against the Queen of England on her land. Would the severity of the crime be any different? There is a chance that that same crime, but done to the Queen, may even lead to your death instantly. Consider now how much more this crime, even though it may seem little in your mind or in the mind of your friend, might look against the almighty, completely holy, and perfect God of the universe, who has sworn that every soul that sins shall die in Ezekiel 18. So here we are, back in the courtroom. The place we will all end up in the day that we die, standing, or perhaps flat on our noses, before the just and righteous God, the establisher and upholder of the law. The law declares every single one of us, apart from Christ, sinners. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have dishonored him. None have sought after him. None are righteous. No, not one. We all stand condemned by the law and our own consciences, deserving an eternal punishment. Do you realize that without Christ, this is your state? This is what is coming for you the day you leave this earth. It is not just dirt, and it's not reincarnation, but rather it's a summoning to a court before the Almighty God who is perfect and just, who both cannot and will not set aside the law out of pity or even love. Now that last statement may have shocked you a little bit, but I say it this way to show you the measure of what Christ has done in order to offer us true righteousness, true reconciliation with God the Father who is both just and justified. Just slipping out of this thought for just a second. How many of you have ever received a ticket before? I have, unfortunately. More than one. <laughs> Including, I've, I've, I've gotten one, including one that required me to go to a courtroom to try and seek mercy and offer my defense. I got pulled over in a routine traffic stop for having a dirty license plate, not knowing that my license had also expired. However, I had just went to renew my license sticker a few weeks prior, so I thought I had a good defense and how they should have told me that I needed to renew my license as well. It's his fault, not mine. Okay, right. <laughs> Perhaps maybe from a story that involves a forbidden tree. <laughs> um, whose fault do you think it actually was? Even if I didn't notice that it had expired, it's still mine, 100%. When I went before the judge, they actually waived the fine for me, if I remember correctly. Would you call this judge a just judge or a merciful judge? I call it merciful, for sure. Is it possible to be both just and merciful together? Or must one surrender to the other 
in some degree in order for them to cooperate. I don't know if you're like me or not, but for many years I thought that when God forgave my sins, his love became just so much more powerful than his righteous anger and justice, showing that his love is the stronger trait in his character. That is, until I read this verse about him being both just and justifier. Together in equal harmony. So we have seen above in the court scene that I tried to portray um, what a just judge looks like. But what must be done then to remain completely just and offer justification, which justification is the act of being made righteous or right with law and God. So if we enter ourselves back into that imagination, into that thought of being back in the court scene here we stand, condemned, the punishment is dished out, and the jury agrees that it is more than fair for what we have done. We throw out as much defense, transference of blame, good works that we've done, and even how our family has gone to church their whole lives. And yet, it is not enough. It can't remove even one iota, one jot or tittle from the condemnation due to us. For our good deeds are like filthy rags before the Almighty God. This is when true mercy steps in. Not a mercy or pity that turns its head from the crimes and says, Go on your own way, you are declared free. But rather, a mercy that says, By my stripes you will be healed. Who says, The blessings that were given me, I credit to your account. While the sin and punishment that is given to you is to be credited to mine. This is the cry of Christ. The seed talked about in Genesis that will crush the head of the serpent. The promised blessing given to Abraham, the Savior and Messiah. Our propitiation or substitute. The one who is our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Jesus Christ stepped in, and while we were yet sinners, willingly took our blame upon himself and took our punishment in full. Becoming sin, being cursed, and dying on the cross in our place. Taking the punishment that we could not bear and placing it on his capable shoulders. Not only did he free us from the punishment of the law, however, but he also freed us from the demands of the law by establishing it, by fulfilling it, by coming to live a perfect life without sin. What a picture of mercy and love given in its fullness in and through Christ. Not turning a blind eye to the law, but rather establishing it completely, fulfilling the law in the positive and negative both in living a perfectly righteous life on our behalf and taking the righteous requirements of the law's consequences upon himself and bearing them even unto death, only to then prove his ability to bear the consequences and to offer full justification by defeating sin and death. 
raising from the grave three days later to reign as king. This is the God who is just and justifies. How then do we receive this justification taken care of and presented to us by Jesus? Let's go back to that court scene one more time. We've been labeled guilty. A sentence of condemnation is over our head. The gavel is in the air, about to declare these as a done deal. And Jesus steps in and yells, wait. He earnestly pleads with the judge through tears and sweat droplets of blood. Isn't there any other way to save them? And upon the judge's firm response of no, Jesus says that I will do as you request. I will take their punishment. Credit them the righteousness I have acquired, and I will bear the burden required of them. The judge then consents to this by agreeing that this will satisfy the demands of the law and the justice required. The Holy Spirit consents to making this propitiation and the substitution available to those who take it. Jesus consents to doing all that is required to take our place, and the question remains, do you consent to Jesus Christ taking your place? Knowing that you cannot work for it, you cannot pay it back, you can't even lessen the punishment due him for now, do him now by trying to live a better life from here on out, but you must simply consent to his offer and take it or not. Here lies the question of the ages before you even this morning. Believe today, and just as it was with Abraham, the righteousness of God will be credited to you. Know that just as Jesus promised in John 6, 37, that if you come to him, he will in no wise cast out. He will in no way turn you away. Not because of the sins you've committed, not due to the fact that you have lived a long life away from God, harming people and living a lie. If you truly come to him with a humble heart, believing and trusting in him, he will not cast you out for any reason. He came to this earth and paid the awful price on the cross for you. Why would he go through that only to turn you away? Maybe you say that you have tried your very hardest to believe and come to him. But you've never been able to experience the new life or the assurance offered you through this transaction and the work of the Holy Spirit. If that is you, consider with me what faith and belief really are. In our passage for today, in the end of chapter 3, it talks of a faith or belief that causes us to have nothing to boast in apart from Christ. Are you or can you boast in your belief? Or in that of Christ alone? What does this boasting belief look like, you might ask? Consider this. Are you saved because you believed in Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Or... 
Are you saved because Christ was crucified for your sins and you believe and trust in that fact? It's a very subtle difference, but a very important one. There was an author, a preacher in the 1800s, his name was Horatius Bonar. He's a great Scotsman of a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> He says it like this. It is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the perfection of the sacrifice that saves. And no feebleness of faith, no dimness of eye, no trembling of hand can change the efficacy of our burnt offering, which is Christ. The vigor of our faith can add nothing to it, nor can the poverty of it take anything from it. Faith in all its degrees, still reads the inscription, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if at times the eye is so dim that it cannot read these words through blinding tears or bewildering mist, faith rests itself on the certain knowledge of the fact that the inscription is still there, or at least that the blood itself, of which these words remind us, remains in all its power and suitableness, just as the Israelites couldn't see the blood on the lintel anymore once inside the house, but God could. The blood remains upon the altar, unchanged and uneffaced. God says that the believing man is justified. Who are we then that we should say, we believe, but we do not know whether we are justified? What God has joined together, let no man put asunder or separate. Conceal your sins no longer. Confess them, knowing where you stand, while leaving them credited to your name. Renounce them in consent to Christ, allowing them to be credited to your Savior and hang there on that tree to be fully reckoned with. And you will find mercy. Another preacher from the 1800s, his name is James Smith, says, Cast your soul upon him, relying on him entirely. Everyone who renounces self, confesses sin, and trusts simply in Jesus stands before God acquitted, justified, accepted, as really and as fully as if he had done all that Jesus did and suffered all that Jesus suffered in his own person. Do you believe that God can do the impossible and take broken people like you and I, I and you, I should probably put me first there, uh, who have no hope as Abraham had with bearing a child in his late years and give them a new hope through the righteousness that comes by faith? If you now understand this and believe, give your life to this perfect, honorable judge Consent to his offer, letting the gavel come to a resounding clang, declaring that you are justified even today. And let him make you new by his Holy Spirit. I urge you, brothers and sisters, believe today and stand in the assurance that his gavel can bring to your new life. And as Keith makes his way up, and I guess the rest of the crew for the last hymn, for the closing hymn, I just wanted to ask those who desire to consent 
and give their life to Christ anew today to come to the front and stand before or perhaps in the and fall whatever you feel necessary in amazement in the presence of our God with us. The song we're about to sing is I Stand Amazed. Before the podium, this great podium, and plead Christ as your victor and savior with me. <laughs> 